before we get to our text, we're going to see this amazing theme in here this morning. This, this reoccurring theme we, we see throughout Scripture of how God uses the unlikely. God does not use the powerful and the mighty to do his greatest works. He uses Joseph. This you know, little runt brother with a bunch of knucklehead older brothers who is just naive enough to think that, he, that because he's his father's favorite, it won't bother his older brothers. And they throw him in a pit and he gets sold into slavery and he, and he goes through all these hardships. But God uses this young boy in prison to give the meaning of the dreams of the Pharaoh of Egypt the most powerful ruler in the world, and he becomes second in power to to, to Pharaoh. And if that wasn't enough, he does that all so that he can redeem his people, bring them into the land of Egypt where there would be enough food to eat. Otherwise, they would starve during this famine. God used Joseph. God uses David, this young shepherd boy, who is the most unlikely of warriors. But because he stands firm on the promises of God, because he knows that it is the Lord who fights the battle and not him, he slays the mighty Goliath. And he becomes a man after God's own heart, the righteous king of Israel, who sings praises to the Lord, who dances with wanton abandon just because he is overwhelmed with who God is. He uses Daniel, another young Hebrew boy who is in exile, And he uses him to save the rest of Israel. And he uses the disciples and on and on and on. He uses the most unlikely. Because if he uses the wise and the smart and the strong and the powerful, who gets the glory? The wise, the smart, the strong, and the powerful. He uses the weak. He uses stammering Moses. He uses pagan Abraham. He uses the unlikely. Because in that, there's no confusion as to whose work is being done. And it is in fact, God gets the most glory and we need him the most. We know this in our lives, in our own areas of of weakness. When we trust in ourselves, we lie to ourselves, telling ourselves we don't need God because I've got this. Or this problem is too small for God or this problem is too big for God. But we should remember, as Jesus told Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I will take a humble new believer with the Holy Spirit than all of the learning of all of the academic atheists in the world. I have a story. Uh, My uncle, my father's family grew up in the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, you are told that it is the church that holds the keys to salvation. That Jesus makes certain things possible, but for the rest of your life, you have to continue on adding to the grace of Christ by earning your own grace. You can't read the Bible for yourself. You can't understand it for yourself. There are those who are more high and more powerful than you, who know more than you, so just sit in your place. So as a young man, he heard this over and over and over again, and he assumed that's what the church was until a friend shared the gospel with him. And his ears are open and his eyes are open for the first time and he understands that I could just trust in Christ. And when his eyes are open, he was so amazed, he told everybody. 
Now, growing up in the Catholic Church, you are not encouraged to read the Bible. You're actually encouraged not to read the Bible. So as a young man with a few verses, he becomes an evangelist and shares it with many people. And because of that, my father and my uncles and my grandmother become believers. I am a believer through the faithful witness of a man with a few verses. And who knew that I was lost and now I'm found. I am blind, but now I see. And you can go back even further. There's a great story of my great-grandmother who did not speak any English, who I I, I never met, uh, but was a faithful believer when they recognized that the Catholic Church would not teach them about Jesus. They met in a little shack in the woods. There were no options for Italian immigrants. And so my father would tell stories of her only words she knew in English were, do you believe in Jesus? And so her evangelistic ways of these young boys would say, you want some gum? Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, they they, they said, we'll believe in anything if you give us gum. But that evangelistic fervor of I know nothing else, but do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? The simple, the unlikely. For faithful generations, from generation to generation, and there are stories like that for all of you who know the Lord. Somewhere along the line, there was some unlikely person who had enough faith to share the gospel who was not scared because they didn't have the knowledge of all the, all the skeptics. They knew they had the Holy Spirit. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit that changes hearts and minds. And we think, sadly, that we have to compete on the level of the academics. Well, I can't share because I don't know enough. I can't answer people's questions because I haven't memorized the entire Bible. But yet you actually have higher ground You actually have more power than all of the books written in all of the world. And here's the question. Either we don't believe it or we don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit. Because many of us are still making excuses, myself included, as to why I can't share. I can't answer this person's question. I don't know enough. When throughout ages it is the question of do you believe in Jesus? Let me tell you who he is. This is exactly where we find ourselves with this man this morning. Because I would argue that the defense of this man here in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind, is the most faithful, logical, and theologically sound response to Jesus of anyone in the Gospels. We're going to walk through that this morning. His argumentation is brilliant. This is coming from a blind beggar with no formal education, but encountering the Son of Man. Emmanuel, he declares wisdom that the religious leaders of the day are completely left in the dust by. So I want to read this in context. And I want you to think about this morning. That when you think that you are are inadequate, you are unlikely, that God could never use you. He used this man. And I want you to know that if he can do it, you can do it. He is emboldened by the confidence of being healed by the Lord of glory. And if you've been transformed by the Lord, you have the same power this man does. You have the same tools at your hand this man does, and even more so. So I hope we are encouraged and challenged this morning by what we see in this faithful example of meeting Jesus. So in context, I'm going to start reading in verse 24. But this morning, we're going to focus on um, 30 to 41. 
So for the second time, they, the Pharisees, called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a liar. He answered, but whether, or excuse me, he is a sinner. But we answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from? And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing. You take the wise things of the world and turn them into foolishness. You take things that are foolish to the world and beneath them. And you use it to reveal the glory of God. Lord, what is man that you are mindful of us? that you would ever regard us, ever use us. How unlikely we are. We're not much different than this blind beggar. And yet you sent your son for us, that you may reconcile us to yourself and that we may be your witnesses. Lord, let us never forget that our calling is not earthly. Our, cur- our calling is before the foundation of the earth. And our calling is from you. Beyond anything that man can throw at us. Uh, and Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would guide us, teach us, convict us of all truth and remind us the things that, of, Jesus, of what Jesus taught us. We would apply it to our minds, our hearts, and our actions that we may grow in your image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So one of the things we're going to see 
As this narrative continues is the gap that widens between the man formerly born blind and the Pharisees who say that they see. Because as his understanding and his faith grows, their anger and their rejection of Christ will grow. And they will escalate to this crescendo where Jesus brings it all to a close. So now we find ourselves in the middle of this discussion. And I wanted to start with this verse because this is so poignant. And I, and I want you to get this. Um, I love well-meaning Christians. Um, but Shree and I were watching a kid's movie the other day about the um, Gospel of John. And in this, this scenario, the uh, blind man is so nice and he's so polite. And the Pharisees are so nice and they're, they're so polite. And there's this, this, this back and forth. This is a heated discussion. These are people who hate Jesus and hate him. And this is a crafty, sly, wise, previously blind man who I'm liking more every week. So when we initially read this in verse 30, where it says the man answered, why this is an amazing thing. What's the amazing thing he's talking about? That his eyes are opened? Yes. Or is it more amazing that he's standing before them with his eyes open and they still can't say who Jesus is? This is an amazing thing. You... You, these people who say you're disciples of Moses, Jesus has been teaching and and healing for three years and you still don't know who he is? That's amazing. You are that dead and that blind that you don't know who he is. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes and I'm standing before you. He touches on the further irony of this whole ordeal. They're supposed to be the religious authority. They're supposed to know all things that are related to the God of Israel. And he's essentially saying, you know-it-alls don't understand this. You don't know where he came from. And yet the fact remains, I'm standing in front of you seeing. Now, what do you have to say for yourselves? Imagine the insult that this is to them. Their entire lives are dedicated to study. Their entire reputation is based on being the correct interpreter of the law and holding all things that belong to the God of Israel. And the God of Israel is walking in front of them and saying, we don't know him. We don't know where he comes from. This is the ultimate insult because not only is that realization being thrown in their faces, but it is being thrown in their faces by a man who is a blind beggar. And as you see, the leaders that Israel had No wonder they were in such rough shape. This is the opposite of the leaders that we talked about on Wednesday night. We're going through Deuteronomy. We spent our time looking at leadership in Israel. And what did God call his leaders to? The words to describe the leaders in Israel. Those first and foremost who fear God. These men only fear themselves. Men who are wise in understanding, who are experienced being able to apply the wisdom that they've learned and impartial. Pharisees are none of these things. These are not the leaders that God intended. These are men seeking men's glory. Which is why Jesus had to come. As we see throughout the entire Old Testament, the shepherds of Israel has led Israel astray. And he uses a blind man to bring it to their attention. So he goes on. Well, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He's referring back 
to verse 16, where they said, how can a man who is a sinner do such, do such signs? This was a pet doctrine of the Pharisees. Well, we're the righteous ones. We're the godly ones. God listens to us. God doesn't listen to you sinners, you publicans, you people who, they call them the people of the land. People actually work for a living. God doesn't listen to you. God listens to us. And so he's throwing their words back in their faces. Well, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. And he's right. We're going to get there in just a second. But he goes on. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So what we've got to understand here is he says listens twice. Why does this matter? Because he recognized that to do a work of God, you must go to God. Jesus did nothing apart from the Father. In order for Jesus to heal him, God must listen to him. God, the Father, must hear his prayers. It is those who worship God and keep his will who God listens to. Only God can heal him. And only someone who comes to God can do works of healing like that. He is reasoning this out right in front of them. And what they debated earlier and where they couldn't agree, he now says clearly, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Why should we be faithful and obedient? Because God hears our prayers. Because God has been pleased with us to send his son and die for us. When we put our trust in him, we can be faithful because God has shown favor to us. Not so that God will show favor to us, but in the same regard, it is circular. Because God is pleased with us, we want to please God. Because God has shown his faithfulness to us, we want to be faithful and obedient to him. And we know if we do, he will hear our prayers. We see this in Psalm 66. Psalm 66, I want to read verses 16 through 20. This psalm is in the context of God's mighty deeds. The beginning of the psalm is reminding them all the things that God has done. God is worthy of praise. And those who are reminded of God's amazing deeds, God's awesome deeds, they can speak like this. Look at verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So if God does not listen to sinners, the reverse is also true. He listens to those who are pleasing to him. But truly God has listened and has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the type of communication that can only happen with one who fears the Lord. The type of prayer that that happens does not happen flippantly from someone who goes to God as a genie, but someone whose praise is on his lips. Let's get real here for a second. Some of you wonder, why doesn't God answer my prayers or why is my prayer life not fruitful? Are you worshiping God or are you going to God as an ATM? Because if his praises are not on your lips, if you do not delight in his presence, your prayers are going to fall flat. Your prayers are going to be empty because they're going to be about you, about God fulfilling your desires. 
But when you approach prayer like the psalmist does, sing praise to the Lord. Awesome are his deeds. He has revived my soul. Then you pray in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. Because you pray as a servant of God, not a director of God. The wisdom that comes from this man. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. There is more theological understanding and depth in this statement than everything we've heard from the Pharisees together combined. And he goes on, and he doesn't, he doesn't let them escape the wonder here. Because he, he gives them a theology lesson, and then he gives them a history lesson. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. I love this. They quote Moses. All right, we're going to go back some generations. We're disciples of Moses. And this man says, never in history has anyone opened the eyes of the blind. You appeal to Moses, I appeal to all history. Are you going to deny something unique that God has done here that you've never seen before? And the argumentation that we saw last week, that concept of syllogism, which may have confused you guys, where there's a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion, he does perfectly here. The major premise, the the first statement is that we know that God does not listen to sinners. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Premise number one, God doesn't listen to sinners. Premise number two, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Number one, God doesn't listen to sinners. Number two, my eyes are opened. Then the conclusion, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Jesus gave us these same words in John chapter 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He is theologically, logically sound. This man could debate with the best of them. And he hands it to him on a silver platter. It's everything you need to know. We know God doesn't listen to sinners. Someone came from God and opened my eyes. And if he wasn't from God, he could do nothing. Case closed, right? So how do they respond to this ironclad argument? They answer him, verse 34. You were born in utter sin and would teach us. You were born in utter sin. This is their response. They still don't even recognize the miracle. They're still accusing this man. You were born in utter sin. It's just true. They understood total depravity, but they didn't understand God's grace. They didn't understand that someone born in utter sin could encounter Christ, receive the mercy and grace of God, and speak words that are not capable of someone who is still in their sin. Instead of facing the facts, they double down on their unbelief. They dig their heels in and they insult him. Even though his argument makes sense. They're so blinded by their hatred and their unbelief that they're not willing to budge from their position. And this makes us think of so many people we encounter today, right? They are so held to the, the lies that their identities are based on that even when faced with the truth, They begin to insult then begin to lash out because the darkness does not want to be exposed. They say, you were born in sin, and they said something else, and you would teach us. Addressing this this irony here, right? 
you would teach us? We spent our entire lives studying. This man's blind. We know he's illiterate. Whatever he knew, he had to hear and pick up from other people's conversations because he would not have been allowed in these temple conversations. You would teach us? We are the keepers of the law of Israel. We are disciples of Moses. Who are you to teach us? I also want to get real here for a minute, too. Sadly, this happens in a lot of churches. Sadly, we have professional Christians who are so dependent on their learning that they could never stoop to be taught by the likes of us. And it's so sad. But I was thinking about this week. I'm so encouraged that every time we meet for study, you guys teach me. I'm amazed that every Bible study we sit down and I learn something, I take away something that I did not come with. And this is the people of God who are sharpening one another. And I will take a humble, thoughtful wisdom and discovery of the saints than all the learning of some cold academic anywhere. And I've read my fair share. Isn't it amazing? The spiritual wisdom that comes from the people of God who submit to his word and who apply it to one another's lives and encourage one another. Let us be careful never to sound like these Pharisees or you're going to teach me. Look at all these books that I have. I have a lot of books. I love books. Don't let me hear anything about books. But Solomon says, you know, the end of writing in, in books, there's no end. There will always be more learning. And learning can be a good thing, but if it leads to arrogance... It is an idol and cast it out. This man taught them. He had faith and wisdom that they couldn't even dream of. The wisdom only that comes from a man whose eyes are opened by the Savior. God takes the wisdom of man and turns it into foolishness. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me. I want to walk through this. I want to spend a little time here because this is such a great parallel passage. Anytime you start to feel like God can't use you, anytime you start to feel like I don't know enough, I I haven't been taught enough, or God can't use someone like me, listen to Paul's words here. See if it sounds anything like Jesus. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul recognizes that the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. But yet he goes on to say, For Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's folly to the world, but to those who are called, what is it? Those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The preaching of the gospel is folly to the world. It is folly to the Pharisees. It is folly to those who are trusting in their own strength. But for those who are called, for those who have ears to hear, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
the power and the wisdom of God in God's word, foolishness to the world. We are so often tempted to trust in the wisdom of the world. We're so often tempted to compare the things of the world and the things the world tells us will give us value and will make us smarter, will make us better. And we forget that it is folly compared to God's word. Rest in what gives eternal foundation, eternal security, eternal wisdom. Do you want the wisdom of God or the wisdom of man? A lot of you can't tell the difference. He goes on. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love that thought. You just wrap your mind around that for a while. And then he gets the, then he gets it to us. He's talking about these grand theological philosophical concepts, and he brings it back down to earth. He's speaking to the church in Corinth, this wicked, dysfunctional church. And he might as well be speaking to us. Look at these words. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Anybody feel like he's speaking to us here? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That is us. For the name of Christ, I will be foolish to the world. Amen. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So the things that are, the things that the world lifts up, the things that the world prides themselves in, they will come to nothing. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The wisdom of God is a glorious thing and we should, we should boast in Christ, but never should it lead to arrogance and boasting. Because it is wisdom from God, not in and of ourselves. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Christ became our wisdom. Christ became this blind man's wisdom. He became wisdom righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord man this should charge us up wait that's me I'm not wise according to the world's standards I'm not powerful I'm not from noble birth but God sent his son for you The gospel is that the meek and lowly shall inherit the earth. Those who are broken in spirit shall speak the words of God. This is the gospel. If you understand the gospel, it can never lead you to arrogance. Because you know how much of this is dependent on Christ and how much of this is dependent on you. But so many of us reverse the order so many times in our lives. So back in John... This foolish man speaks the wisdom of God, and what does it get him? He teaches the teachers of Israel, and what do they do? They cast him out. Now, this is in the same vein of those who profess Christ would be cast out of the synagogue. Do we know if he was cast out of the synagogue? Not really. The context implies it. 
at the least, they probably took this man out and threw him out of their presence. John Calvin in his commentary said that's the best thing they could have ever done to him. And most likely his social standing was probably out the window. But at this point, he didn't care. This man had nothing to lose. Because those who have so much to trust in, they have so much to lose. This guy had nothing to lose. And what happens? They throw him out of the temple. But John Chrysostom, the the, the early church father, said the Lord of the temple came and found him. They cast him out of the temple, but the temple of God himself found him. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, now, Jesus doesn't run up to him and say, hey, how does it feel to, to, to see again? Are your eyes working all right? Like, can I do a follow-up with you? No, Jesus goes right to, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is what the shepherd does. The shepherd seeks those who are cast out. He finds them. And if the gospel was just about changing someone's station in life, he would have left him where he was. But he found him. After he addressed his eyes, he addressed his heart. It is a mistake to make the gospel only about someone's quality of life. Jesus' biggest concern is not are your eyes open, but do you believe in the Son of Man? This is an important part of understanding the ministry of Christ. He never was only concerned with the external physical well-being of someone. What's more important than physical sight is spiritual sight. Do you believe? This is a great question for us. Because many times our God is too small. This term here, the son of man, we've talked about this so many times. Do you believe in the son of man? Okay, maybe you can believe in a God that you can go to for prayer for a new job or a God that you can go for prayer when someone's sick. But do you believe in the son of man? The one who sits on the throne of glory forever, who shares in the glory with the ancient of days, who has the power over all nations forever. Do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in the one anointed of the father to rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords forever? Do you believe in him? Not just a guy with sandals who heals, but the king of kings. Do you believe in him? Let me ask you, do you believe in him? Can we rest in that? Do we rest that Jesus is not just a good teacher? He's not just a nice guy. He's the son of man, the Lord of glory. If we reminded ourselves who Jesus is, that he is seated on the throne of power and glory and grace, what would that mean to all of our other prayers? To all of our prayers for temporary things? Does it put the things of this life in perspective? What does this mean for our fears, our anxieties, our worries about tomorrow? If we remember that we have been saved by the Son of Man, the Lord of glory. And his response is brilliant. And he answered it, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? This is what faith looks like. You open my eyes. I will listen to anything you have to say. Tell me where to go. Tell me who to believe in. I will do it. And Jesus knows this man's heart. And Jesus said, you have seen him. Look at the words here. You have seen him, and he is speaking to you. Uh, I love how one commentator translates this. He says, you have seen him. In fact, 
the one speaking to you is he. You've seen him, but in fact, I'm standing in front of you. This great double meaning here. Because, of course, he's seen him. Okay, you behold him with your eyes, but you've also seen him in a way that helps you to know who he is. There is a spiritual sight. You have beheld him, and he is standing in front of you. The one who's speaking to you is he. This is also a double meaning. Yes, Jesus is actually speaking to him. But he is speaking spiritual words to a spiritual person who now has understanding because he has faith in Christ. He is speaking in a way that the world cannot understand. They shut up their ears. You have seen him and he is speaking to you. Spiritual sight and spiritual speech to someone who can spiritually discern them. And after hearing these amazing words from Jesus, does he do like the Pharisees? Does he say, all right, well, is this really true? How do I know? Let me do. What is his response? He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. There's an interesting play on words here in the Greek, and the ESV translates it this way. But in verse 36 and verse 38, the same word is used for Lord, kurios, which, which can mean sir or Lord. But where it's placed in the sentence helps you to understand its meaning. In verse 36, it's really, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So many people had, had translated this, that he was calling him Lord at the time. Same word is used for sir or, or Lord. I mean, we, we get this in British speech. Like, who is he, sir, that, that I may believe in him? But he takes it. Some of you will take a minute. But now, once he believes, the curious goes to the beginning of the sentence. It now drives the sentence, Lord, I believe. Not sir, I believe. Lord, I believe. And he worships him. It is appropriate to worship. He has no choice but to worship. He knew the significance of the Son of Man. He knew what Jesus was saying to him. It was spiritually discerned. And if Jesus was not divine, it would be blasphemous for him to worship him. And if Jesus accepted his worship and he was not divine, it would have been blasphemous. They both should have been stoned for idolatry if Jesus was not who he said he was. And when people tell you Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible, point them here. Because if someone worships you any other time, someone is worshipped who is not God, like an, like an angel or, or, or the disciples, they say, back up. I'm just an angel. I'm just a man. I'm just, I'm just a servant. Don't worship me. Jesus welcomes the worship as he should. And this man's spiritual journey is now complete. He goes from being blind and a beggar to seeing Jesus for who he really is. And encountering the risen Christ always should result in worship. I want to challenge you today. If you're not compelled to worship, you don't know your own brokenness. If you are not compelled to worship, if every time you think about the cross and what Christ has done, every time you think about the weight of your sin, if it does not draw you, compel you to worship, you don't know how sinful you are. Please be more like this blind beggar who knew how he's been transformed than the Pharisees who are standing on their own righteousness. We don't come to church and worship because we have to. Like Deshaun said before service, we're not checking off a box. Where else would we go? 
What else would we do? I've been blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I know who gave me sight. And I will worship him with all that I am. So this is how Jesus responds in verse 39. For judgment I came into the world. Well, that seems like an interesting transition. This guy's worshiping him. He doesn't say thank you. Yes, I'm glad you understand. He says for judgment I came into the world. Let's think about where we find ourselves. And I want to tell you about this word judgment. So Jesus finds the man. He's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees cast him out. Jesus finds him. The Pharisees are still in proximity because they're going to show up in a minute. And this shows the ultimate contrast. Because the Pharisees are fuming. They hate this man. They hate Christ. And here he is. This word worshipped him. Worship in the Hebrew understanding is usually falling prostrate on your face. So they're probably in the street somewhere. And this man does not care. Falls down and worships Jesus. For judgment I came into the world. Now, there are two words for judgment used in the New Testament. The one that is typically used, crisis, uh, is basically it's a separating and it's a distinction followed by a decision. So the separating of the sheep from the goats, the good fruit from the bad fruit, that is one type of judgment. The word used here is crema, which is the result of the separating. So this particular word means I came to separate. And the result of it is some are going to worship and some are going to hate me because I'm going to come for mine and it's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He goes on to explain that for judgment. I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who may see may become blind. Those who say, oh, Jesus came in the world to save everybody. No, he didn't. Jesus never said that. Jesus came to separate. Jesus said, I didn't come for peace, but a sword. I'm going to separate brother from from sister. There's going to be a separation. And in that, there is judgment. And in that, that judgment, there is going to be worship and praise. And then there's going to be darkness. Because some are squinting their eyes so hard that they, because they do not want to see the Lord of glory. This is what he came to do. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He came to separate the sheep from the goats, the good fruit, the bad fruit. Those who are seeing in their own strength, those who do not see can see. But then you ask yourself, well, didn't he come to seek and save the lost? Yes, he did. And in that seeking and saving, there is a separation. When he saves the sheep, the goats will lash out. And the goats will hate whoever belongs to their enemy. This is why he came into the world. To redeem his. And to cast out the rest. Because he didn't come for those who don't think that they need it. This is a matter of need. I came for those who do not see. Who are lowly of heart. Who are are blind in their own sin. But those who think they already see, they don't need a doctor. It's going to be two passages we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 9. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. If you're in John, go back three books. First gospel, first book of the New Testament. 
And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and followed him. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, probably Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look how Jesus responds here. Who did he come for? Those who are well have no need of a a physician. Those who say they see don't need a doctor. The ones who need a doctor are the ones who are sick. The ones who don't see. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's what the division of Christ looks like. He came for those who know that they are sinners. Look also at Luke chapter 18. Two books to your right. One of my favorite parables in the Bible. You may get this a few more times. So Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The same Pharisees, those who thought they were righteous, who treated others with contempt. He says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Listen to the first one, the Pharisee. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Those who've been in my my Bible studies, we talk about repeated words. What words are repeated here? God, I thank you that I am not like the other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe for all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the same picture here. Those who see, look what I've done. Look how good I am. You will be blind and I will cast you out. Those who beat their breast and know they can't even look to God in their own strength. Because they know they are sinners. We believe this cultural lie and you know, we get it in Christian bookstores and good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. It's not true. Those who are good in their own sight, hell is what they deserve because they're going on their own strength. But those who know that they are bad, who know that they are wicked, who know that they are sinners, who are broken before the Savior, eternity with God awaits them. So how do we wrap this up? Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. So the Pharisees are here. Are we also blind? And Jesus, you can sense this solemnness in his voice, just this sadness. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains Charles Spurgeon said, It is not our littleness that hinders God, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, but our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, but our supposed light that holds back his hand. It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, but our strength. 
It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, but our supposed light that holds back his hand. Just a bit of self-examination as we close up. Is this you? Where in your life are you, are you relying on your bigness? Where are you relying on your strength? Where is your supposed light holding back the work of Christ in your life? Where are you trusting in your own goodness and your own ability? I'll ask you like Jesus asked them. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the crucified Christ? Do you know that you need a doctor? Are you wise in your own eyes? I just want to encourage you guys. <laughs> we are the unlikely. We are not the wise and the powerful by the world's standards. God's desire is not our vast knowledge or our arrogance or our strength, our own ability on our own, but our humility and our faith in the worship of the only one who can save us. I'm going to close with a quote from John Bloom, co-founder of Desiring God with John Piper. Sheree just finished his book called Not By Sight. If you guys like storytellers, he does a great job of telling the, the story of people of faith in the New Testament and giving the, the cultural context to their situations. Here's what he says about the blind man. He says, so was it worth it? Suffering so much for decades in order to proclaim the glory of God's grace. What did God give him in return? He loved him so much that he sent his son for him. What God gave him in return was a gift that would be worth 10,000 blind lifetimes. What God gave him in return was a gift that would be worth 10,000 blind lifetimes. I just want to encourage you, whatever you go through in life, it is all worth it if it leads to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we sinners can even come before you. Lord, my prayer is simple. Wherever we are strong in our own sight, Lord, break us. Wherever we are wise in our own eyes, Lord, make us foolish. Wherever we are declaring light in arrogance, humble us that we may throw yourselves at your feet and worship. Let us be worshipers of you. Lord, help us to declare, I believe. Amen.